But good morning, Austin Oaks Church family and friends. So good to see you. Yeah, I can tell we're, we're ready. Okay, let's go to Acts 19. We're going to start in verse 8. So if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to pull that out or you can open it up on your phone. Um, I want to start out by just sharing with you a common occurrence that seems to happen often in the Ziski household. I won't speak for the family, but more specifically between my wife and I. You see, every week we have a certain night set aside for movie nights for her and I just to have some downtime and to watch a movie. And um, what ends up happening is either frustration of futility because we can't find a movie to watch or it's just kind of basic where her genres that she likes are completely nowhere near my genres of like. She's like straight up Jane Austen, you know, and I'm like straight up Braveheart, okay? And so give me anything epic with war, under, you know, and then there's like the romance. And so oftentimes we have some conflict in there. But usually how this goes is um, my wife and I, we're not usually up to date on pop culture. We typically don't know what new movies are out there or what we should watch and all kind of stuff. And so a lot of times when it comes to it, like I'm the kind of designated person to pick the movie. And 99 out of 100 times, I won't say 9 out of 10 because that's 90, it's more like 99% of the time, I will pick a movie that I have seen at least 10 times, guaranteed. And like she, she would usually have that moment of like, Brandon, like doesn't it ever just get old that you're watching the same thing? And for me, I'm like watching Rocky 1 through 100 never gets old. Like I can extract something from it, but it like that's the tension we had. She's like, man, we've seen this so many times. It's getting boring. It's getting routine. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But I think, honestly, we all understand that. We've all experienced that where something has grown to be so familiar. And also that statement of familiarity breeds contempt. Like if you see something over and over and over and over, like the, the power or the beauty of whatever it is you're seeing can slowly lose its effect, right? Or, or something you hear over and over and over, it can just kind of slowly lose its grip on our hearts or something that we, we watch and hear. And so we got to be careful of ourselves getting too complacent and too stuck because that is a very normal thing that happens. So when we look at some of the things when it comes to Jesus and Scripture, I felt the burden on my heart to challenge us as, as a church to, to kind of like wake us up a little bit because I do believe sometimes like we have grown to be too familiar with the gospel story. Or we've grown to be too comfortable with like the power of God or all the things that we hear in Scripture, specifically as we've been going through Acts. Because now it feels like, man, Acts 19 feels a little bit like a rerun of chapter 18. And chapter 18 was a bit of a rerun of chapter 15 and so on and so forth. But I want to encourage you, let's not see or hear the story this way. Like we got to be careful in the church where familiarity with Jesus, familiarity with the gospel. We don't water down the effect of it. Because I know sometimes when we read this, we can just regulate it down to going, man, that was a great story. I loved it. Instead of going, how do we live this? Is this still true today? So here's the question I want us to be wrestling with. Have we become too familiar or even too complacent with Jesus? 
Have we become too familiar to the degree that like the once given respect and reverence to his name has sort of diminished a little bit? Not like I know Jesus more, which is a good thing. This is that I know about it, I've been there, done that, all that kind of stuff. Have we forgotten the beauty and the power that is in the name of Jesus that is found in the gospel where Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for all who believe. It's true. And if we were honest, we all feel this, that we have settled sometimes into these stories. We're like, man, that was a good story, a good challenge, a good this. We can fail to remember when we're singing, what a beautiful name, to actually pause and realize who we're singing to. That at the name of Jesus, mountains crumble. When the guards come to arrest Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus just simply says, I am. And they all fall. Like, have we forgotten that? Where are you at this morning? Where are you at this morning? Have we settled for a watered-down, lukewarm of Christianity? What would happen in the church if all of a sudden fear and respect and awe came back in? 1 Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's not a matter of a good sermon. It's not a matter of a good study. It's not a matter of a good philosophical ideology that's being presented in a lecture. It's not a good debate. No, the kingdom of God is about power. It's about transformation. It's about life change. It's about setting captives free. It's about having a living hope, being made alive. The kingdom of God is not just talk. It's power. Have we forgotten that? So now with that in mind, let's go to Acts chapter 19. Because we're going to see some things in this story that's going to happen. And we're going to see it of people who are first hearing about this and experiencing the power of God. And what ends up happening as a result from it. And we're going to use it as a means to challenge us, to stir us up out of complacency. And so I'm going to provide for us four points or four things that we can do to make sure to protect our hearts from getting to a place of being too familiar, of just going, that's a great story. Four things that we can do, in other words, to prepare us for a move of God. Starting with verse 8. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue in Ephesus... He entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, I want you to note that because Luke brings up that, that nickname of the movement of Jesus again. Instead of saying Christians, he brings back the way. Speaking evil of the way, he withdrew from them, and he took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, a.k.a. the hall of the tyrant. Now, real quick, it is important to understand the context of the locations that Paul or the early church is preaching in. Here we're in Ephesus. Last week we were in Corinth. And if you look at this map that I provided for you, like Corinth is on the other side of the sea. So now he crosses over into Ephesus. Ephesus is either the third or the fourth largest Roman city in its empire at that time. It was known as the gateway into Asia Minor, which we call modern-day Turkey. 
It was a destination vacation hotspot. Ephesus was a tourist trap in many ways. There were things in the city that were like so spectacular that just felt like rumors to the rest of the world unless you saw it. And Ephesus was the largest library ever built. In fact, if you go to Ephesus today, you would still see pictures of those ruins there. And they also had this massive 24,000-seat auditorium, this theater that was carved into the hillside, which shows up in the story. Nowhere else in that ancient part of the world had anything like this. It was such a marvel that people would come to see. And the crown jewel of Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, the Temple of Diana. Massive extraordinary, beyond beauty. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, of blessing and prosperity. And people from all over would come into Ephesus to worship Artemis just for prosperity. Like people would come, get some magic spells, an incantation, or a little souvenir shrine of the temple, or an actual statue of Artemis. And they would take that little souvenir as a trinket, and they would take it back home, kind of like a lucky rabbit's foot. And they would take it and feel like it was going to be a means of blessing. So they would bury it in their yard, put it in their cattle, like in the field where their cattle were, or their crops, or in their bedrooms, because Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And also, Ephesus was well known as the city of magic, of dark magic in the occult. Think New Ageism. Like people would come to Ephesus to get all sorts of potions and trinkets. They had something for anybody. If you're possessed, we got people who cast out demons. You got a bad hip, we got a potion for that. We got magic books, we got abracadabras, we got all these stuff. And so people would come and just imagine it as a tourist trap where like everywhere in the city were these little shops, little tents, like street vendors selling little trinkets and things. That's the city. That's the worldview of this culture. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people would enter Ephesus every year. Its income in the city was built around tourism. Like that was how people built wealth. So Paul does what Paul does. Paul knows that Jesus changes everything. And that's a pithy statement that we say often here, don't we? Like when you encounter, it changes everything. When you meet Jesus, it is a game changer. Do we really believe that? Like, do we really believe that and live that to the degree that we actually are people of the way? Like, we, are, like we believe so much in Jesus, yes, that he is the only way in the midst of a culture of propping up many ways. And it's not just an intellectual thing because the way is speaking of a way of life. They're living a certain way. Paul goes to the temple, preaches about Jesus, preaches about the way. They're stubborn. They fight it. They want nothing to do with it. So then he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. Now, fascinating. Some of you will love this. Some of you are like, why are you wasting your time with this? In Ephesus, in Asia Minor specifically, their work world revolved around a totally different schedule than ours. They would work from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. And then they would have a five-hour lunch break. Yeah, from, from 11 to 4, 
And primarily because they didn't have air conditioning, right? So it was just too hot, so it was a real practical thing. So they had a five-hour siesta, then they would go back to work from four to nine. That was the ebb and flow. So Paul, we know, was probably tent-making at this place, and he was given free rent to go into the hall of the tyrant to preach about the way, and he would do this every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. This tells us a lot about Paul. This tells us about his zeal and his passion. Like he would work hard and he would leverage his vocation, as we said last week, for the gospel, connecting people. And without a doubt, he was inviting people, hey, at 11 o'clock at the Hall of Tyrannus, I'm going to be talking about Jesus. I would love for you to come. And then he would go every day from 11 to 4 and speak Jesus. Fascinating. Now watch what happens in verse 10. This continued for two years. Two years. This was the rhythm of his life. For two years, work 7-Eleven, go preach Jesus 11-4, go back to work, do his thing. This was happening. And look at the result. So that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, here's what I'm seeing here. Paul's doing what Paul's always doing. This is something we've been talking about. He's just sowing seeds indiscriminately. He doesn't know where God's at work, but he does know that God is at work, that God is out to redeem people, to save the lost. So he's like, I don't know who, but I'm just going to tell anybody who's open to hearing. So I'm just going to talk about Jesus. And that's what he's doing. And Paul knew that he was given the responsibility to preach the gospel, just like we know. And he knew that he was given the power inside through the Holy Spirit to witness about Jesus, which we know. And so that's why he's doing this. Paul knew that the word of God is alive and active. That it will do what it's meant to do as it's out there and being exposed at people's hearts. Paul knew, like we should know, that God's word will not return void. So he did what he was supposed to do. Paul didn't know who would believe in Jesus. He just knew how important it was to sow seeds and talk about Jesus. And that's what we see. Paul had no clue, zero, no clue at all about what would happen. And the results were beyond anything Paul could have imagined. All of Asia heard, all the people heard about Jesus. And I'm asking myself the question, how? How did that happen? Did like literally everybody in all of Asia Minor come into the hall of Tyrannus? Like did they travel just to hear this short little bald man who's way longer winded than me read the next couple stories in Acts? You will see that. Like how did that happen? Like how did Paul get a captive audience for two years? Like if it was just another name, just another religious superstition, just another incantation, there's no way that Paul would have had a captive audience. What was happening? Maybe the tyrant who had a nickname, because surely no mom would name their kid the tyrant, at birth. A nickname, yes, maybe. But like how did that happen? Like why would the tyrant open up his place to allow Paul to preach Jesus as the only way. Maybe his life was changed and maybe that started to spread. I don't know. Like how did this happen? Do movements, church, do movements like this still happen? Where the word is being preached and the next thing you know, everybody in the region hears about Jesus. Does that still happen today or is that just a story? 
Have we become like way too used to reading these stories and be like, man, that's a great story. Oh, that'd be fun if it happened today, but I'm not really expecting it. Are we too comfortable and familiar with these types of stories that it no longer grabs us, stirs us, surprises us, challenges us to want to see it happen? Like Luke is saying without saying, okay, that people are hearing about Jesus and they're experiencing the power of God. They're experiencing life change. They're experiencing resurrection power, addictions being broken. All sorts of things are happening and they're going, this is different. How does something like this happen where a whole region hears about Jesus? So I want you to look at this map again, okay? Because as we look at this, I want you to notice something. And some of you, you see it right away. Some of you don't, which is totally okay. Eight powerhouse gospel churches were planted out of this two-year stint. One of them was the church in Colossae, which Paul wrote the letter Colossians to. Paul didn't plant that church. And then there's seven churches, like the popular seven churches, which we see again in another book in the New Testament. Maybe this picture will kind of ring a bell. The seven churches found in Revelation, right? Like they were planted out of this two-year stint. Did Paul plant these churches? No. Who did? Ordinary people who found their way into the hall of the tyrant to hear about Jesus. Paul was just speaking Jesus. He was just speaking Jesus and more than likely praying as well. They experienced life change, life power. Not just, oh, that was a great idea. Well, I'm going to bring that dome and we're going to start talking about this new name. No. Radical transformation. So much so, they went home and as they went home, they lived, sent, invested in people and began to speak Jesus. And then these eight massive churches were popped up in, in, in Asia Minor. Ordinary people. Does this happen Still. Because I tell you this, not everybody in Asia came into the hall of the tyrant. What happened? People who came in, heard the message of Jesus, were, light, were moved in power, and then were left. They left and went home and told other people about Jesus. Counting the cost, no longer caring about what people would say, removing and casting out idols in their lives because there's a greater love, a greater affection. I've never experienced anything like this. I now have a relationship with Jesus, the great and holy God who speaks all things into being. Like, you got to know there's a way for you to know about this guy. Have we lost sight of that? Like, like, there's these massive movements happening in the world right now. In China, in Africa, in the Middle East, where people, underground movements, are hearing about Jesus, and then they're going back home and they're telling everybody about Jesus, and mass revivals breaking out. Why is that not happening here in the West? I have a hunch. And my hunch is familiarity has bred contempt. We have forgotten the power and the beauty that's in the name of Jesus and what the name of Jesus and the gospel can do in people's lives. So church, do we believe that God can move again in our time, in our city? Not rhetorical. Do we believe that God can move again in our time, in our city? Okay. Then we need to apply a few things 
to keep us from becoming complacent. We can't plan a move of God, but we can prepare for a move of God. And what we see thus far in the story are two things that we can do to ensure that we don't settle, that we don't get too familiar. One is implied, and we can make this inference because of his normal habit. He prayed missionally. Missional prayer. Praying for God to open doors, for God to make a way, to soften people's hearts, praying for people who don't know Jesus. I promise you Paul was praying for people that he had encountered on the streets. I promise you Paul was praying while he was preaching. Guaranteed, missional prayer. And that leads to the second thing. Speak Jesus. Speak Jesus. We are not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why? Because in the gospel there's a great moral ethic and we're just morally superior than everybody else out there? Why? Why aren't we ashamed? And why should we be passionate about speaking Jesus? Because it's the power of God. It's the only thing that can make dead things come alive. So now we're going to see the third. We're going to see the third. Respecting his name. Respecting the name of Jesus. Okay, just letting you know, this is one of the more bizarre stories. Verse 11 And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That is not a, probably a good ministry model to follow. That was a very specific time and place because in Ephesus, there was great power encounters that needed to be done. And so in a lot of ways, God was speaking the language of the city at that point. But what ended up happening was because of these extraordinary things and life change were happening, the name of Jesus started to go around. Right? There were people who believed in the name of Jesus and, and believed the word of God for what it actually was. But there was other people who were like, how do I capitalize on this? Right? Because this is something we've been saying too. When God moves, who else moves? The enemy moves. And so when the name of Jesus is actually being displayed and portrayed for what it is, guess what happens? The enemy wants to prop up counterfeits and begin to distort and abuse the name of Jesus. And so enter the seven sons of Sceva who will turn into the seven streakers of Sceva. That was funny. (laughs) The seven sons, verse 14, you guys are like so lame. I know. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest, or let me back up verse 13. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now these guys weren't in it for compassion. They weren't in it because they truly cared about people. It was a business to them. It's how they made money. People would come to their storefront like, hey, Sally or so-and-so needs this kind of exorcism. Can you do that? Because these guys had all sorts of different incantations and names that they would use. And they were like, oh, Jesus is the new trend. People are looking for the new Jesus model. I will take that and I will use it because watch what happens. They come and undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Fascinating. They don't know Jesus. They're just using the name. The seven sons of a Jewish high priest who wasn't a high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, which is awesome. The evil spirits recognize you when you follow Jesus, you know, and they're threatened. But watch how this evil spirit disses this guy. But who are you? 
You have no idea what you're playing with. The evil spirit knew, straight up. How many times did we hear that in Scripture that we, even the de- demons like hear the name of Jesus and shudder, right? Like, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered them all of them, overpowered them so that they fled at the house naked and wounded. See, the seven sons of, okay. The local Ghostbusters chapter shows up. And they abuse the name of Jesus. They're misusing the name of Jesus. It's a counterfeit to it to start to kind of like distort the actual movements of God that was happening in Ephesus and in the region. That's what we see happening in here. Friends, like this still happens today. Like there are so many movements of God that's happening in the world, but then there's other people who want to capitalize on the name of Jesus. And I'm, I, I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm going to highlight just a few of them because I think it's important for us to understand it. People always, ever since Jesus has come on the scene, people have always abused the name of Jesus. They've used the name of Jesus for their own selfish gain and profit, and they also use the name of Jesus as if it's a game. Nasty, overly fundamental churches abuse the name of Jesus by spewing out hatred, judgment, and curses on people who don't follow Jesus. I would say that's an abuse of the name of Jesus, so much so that it distorts how people see who Jesus is. You see how I'm working here? Health and wealth, prosperity preachers. Distort and abuse the name of Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, just sow a seed of faith, and then you will get to know Jesus more. No, that's not at all what they say. Sow a seed of faith, and God will get you out of debt. You will get more money in your bank account. You will do this, and only one person's bank account is getting bigger. It's an abuse of the name of Jesus, so that other people, when they hear the name of Jesus, it's distorted. People who build their own platform their own brand of Christianity by using the name of Jesus. Now, I get it. It may not be as overt because I think sometimes we do this subtly and it's real sneaky. Because I do think people in the church, sometimes we play games with the name of Jesus. If we use God as our genie, God, you're going to give me, you're going to give me, and you're going to give me. And that's what you're for. So I'm going to use the name of Jesus as my, like, superstitious thing at the end of the prayer. Because not what I asked for, I say in Jesus' name, ba-bing, should be mine. Or we see Jesus as a cosmic consultant. That's an abuse of his name. And a consultant is someone who sees the issues and provides to you recommendations. And then the company or whoever it is chooses which recommendations to apply. Right? Well, We don't get to do that when it comes to Jesus, but I think a lot of us do. I like this Jesus, I like this point, I like this thing, but this I'm not going to do. So that. Those are all subtle means of abusing the name of Jesus. That's disrespect. There's no fear or awe when it comes to that. Religion is masterful at using the name of Jesus for the wrong reasons. Like Jesus even warned in Matthew 7 about this exact situation. People are coming and, Jesus, did we not do this and that in your name? And Jesus says in a very, depart from me. I never knew you. Like I think that should just kind of grab us a little bit and just be like, am I playing games with the name of Jesus? 
Has it just become so familiar? Is Jesus just my homeboy? That was so 90s. Like, this is important because what we see happen now because of this extraordinary stuff that's happening, life change is happening. The seven sons got whooped. Also, next thing you know in verse 17, and this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus. It's almost like fear and awe were falling again on the name of Jesus. And, and fear and awe was landing on people outside of the church. And fear and awe followed upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. We see two things unfolding here like this healthy fear. This healthy fear, which is appropriate when it comes to Jesus. Like, there should be a healthy and appropriate fear. Like, oh my goodness, you're God and I'm not. How, that's why so many people, when they encounter even an angel, they have to hear this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But not only that, like, the name of Jesus was being revered and, and extolled and well-known and all. Like, this name is different then every other potion, every other abracadabra, every other spell that we use in this city, this one's different. You know when I experience this dynamic? Let's just say I don't drive as slow as I ought to. So anytime I'm driving down 290 or up 290 and I see a cop off to the side, I immediately do two things. One, I freak out. Like, immediately I'm like, ha, I'm scared. There's a sense of fear in that moment. And then I immediately hit the brakes. As if, like, ha, I got him. <laughs> and as I keep driving, I paranoia, like, in paranoia, I'm looking in the rear of the mirror. Did he turn on? Did he turn on? Did he turn on? And I'll do it for, like, 10 miles. And, I, I, like, to be honest, like, I'm not afraid of the cop. Like, that's not where the fear and respect like necessarily is, it's, it's also in the uh, position of authority that's been vested into him, like the law that's been vested into him that is over me. So I have this like this sense of fear because of the power and authority that's been vested to him. How much more so with God? Like we all know this dynamic, but there's a healthy and appropriate fear when it comes to the name of Jesus. So how do we keep ourselves from becoming complacent? Friends, we have to learn to, again, to respect his name. Respect his name. Have we become too familiar with the name of Jesus that it just doesn't move us? It doesn't cause us to shudder. It doesn't bring awe and wonder to us. Like, have we forgotten of his holiness and his greatness, the fear that comes with it? I immediately think of Mark 4, the disciples in the boat crossing the sea of Galilee, and this big storm comes, and Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat, and the disciples are freaking out because they think they're going to die and drown. And so they wake Jesus up, not because they thought Jesus could calm the storm, but like, Jesus, grab another bucket and help us. Jesus doesn't grab a bucket. He speaks to the storm, a raging storm, and he says to it, be still, and and what happened to the disciples? Fear. And he even says that Peter was just like, oh my gosh, who are you? 
Have we forgotten that? And they even, they're like, and their question, the disciples are like, who is this man? That's the word on the street in Ephesus. Who is this Jesus? Because fear and awe is being undisplayed and it almost like enters back the church. Church, who is this? Who is Jesus? John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. He, all things were made by him and through him and for him. He's the light of the world. He's the preeminence of God. Like he's the greatest. There's no one higher. There's no one greater. He is above all things. Like this is unreal. He just speaks things into being and it happens. And yet he loved so much that he took on flesh. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become righteous. Like this great and glorious and holy God came down to take on flesh to rescue and save people who want to abuse his name and be done with him. Oh my goodness. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. He like just took on our flesh. He did all the things that we could never do for ourselves. And Philippians tells us that like God extolled him to the highest, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And then you get to Revelation. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Who is this man? He's my savior, he's my brother, and he's also God. That fear and awe grabbed the church. And watch what happens next, verse 18. Many of those who now believed, right, these are now the believers. It's like fear and awe was spreading out in the city and the region, but now fear and awe came back into the church because now we're seeing what God does within the believers. Now believers came because of the remembering of the power in the name of Jesus and power in the gospel, they came confessing and divulging their practices. Divulging means they're like bringing what they kept in the darkness into the light to expose the lies and its power. And a number of those who have practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They did this publicly. This is their... I'm following Jesus, no turning back moments. I no longer need anything. None of these idols matter. I don't need any of this because all I need is Jesus and the love and the affection of Christ has overrun them. They're new creations. They're disposing all of this publicly. And it came to 50,000 pieces of silver in today's monetary value that's in here between seven to eight million dollars. They didn't sell those books. Because they're like, man, we paid for it. We should at least get some of that money back. They're like, we know what's attached to us. We want nobody else to deal with these lies and these idols. And they burnt it. They're like, we're done with it. We're moving on once and for all. It's almost as if they were reminded that we can't play names with the name of Jesus. Maybe they were reminded as they were trying to follow Jesus that they were actually still trying to serve two different masters. Maybe they were reminded that they become complacent to certain sins and idols in their life. And they're like, I can't have this in my life and follow Jesus at the same time. And so publicly, 
in the midst of a city that promotes multiple ways, whose very financial well-being is wrapped up in an industry of idolatry, all of these people who are now becoming believers are saying, we no longer need idols, and the natural result is their financial system got wrecked. Powerful. Can this still happen today? So how do we keep ourselves from being too complacent, being too familiar with the name of Jesus? We pray missionally, we speak Jesus, we respect his name, but fourth, deep commitment and repentance. Deep commitment and repentance. Friends, what in your life needs to be done with once and for all. Are you trying to serve two masters still? Here's a simple way to know. Are there good things in your life that you have elevated to a God thing? That you go, I actually will not be happy or fulfilled if this is not present. If you have that in your life, that needs to go. Money, success, beauty, relationships, pornography, etc., etc. Go through the list. What is it in your heart that you need to be done with, to stop playing games with, to move on once and for all in your life? And maybe it's not like a real serious, like overt sin issue. What if it's just disobedience? Like what if you know God's calling you into mission or calling you into serving or calling to you to give generously or calling you to forgive somebody that you really don't want to forgive? Like are you saying no to that? Because here's the reality. If we hang on willingly to past sins and idols in our life and we willingly choose to be disobedient to the things that God is calling us, friends, we are disrespecting the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus will not be extolled in our lives. People will not see the difference in your life if you continue to water that down. So maybe that's why the church isn't as potent as it could be. It's because we have grown a little too comfortable with certain things. And I love what happens. Verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase. In other words, The movement was spreading. People were saying yes to Jesus because they were experiencing something so different that resonated with the very core of who they were. And it prevailed mightily. Because there is no name that is greater. There is no name that is higher. And Jesus was being exalted as king of kings and lord of lords. And every idol was exposed like the Incredible Hulk said to Loki, puny God. Pop culture. So this is how we keep ourselves from becoming too complacent. We pray missionally. You still pray for your own needs and all that stuff, but let's remember, right? Like Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God because your Father already knows what you need. Pray for the city. Pray for your children. Pray for people who don't know Jesus. Pray that God would use you. Pray, pray, pray. And as you pray, 
Second thing, you speak Jesus. You want to see God move? Well, give him a chance to move through your life. Give him a chance. Speak Jesus. The word is alive and active. It will not return void. God is in a heartbeat and desire and passionate to save those who are lost. Speak Jesus. Third, respect his name. Remember. Remember who he is. And fourth, deep commitment and repentance. Deep commitment and repentance. And when the church no longer plays games with the name of Jesus, God moves in a very profound and unexpected way. Lives begin changed when people are captivated by Jesus. And when people are captivated by Jesus, they can't help but speak Jesus. The kingdom of God is not, is not a matter of talk, but of power, of power. So here's what we're going to do. On your seats, you have this piece of paper. And we're going to have this time of worship and response. And this piece of paper, I want you to prayerfully reflect, and maybe you already know, but in this time of worship and reflection, like what is it in your life that you need to be rid of once and for all? The burning of the magic books, as it were. What area of disobedience, what sin, what idol, what is it? And we're going to encourage you to do exactly what this church did. Because I think there's something profound when the church moves in public. Like we get ourselves so wrapped up in private and individual faith. Like we are asking you to come forward and there are four garbage bins. And no, we're not going to light them on fire. We're four garbage bins. And as a symbolic act, you're going to take that sheet of paper and we want you to throw it away. Of saying, I am no longer going to play games with this. And we're going to have people over here in these prayer spots on the side. And if you want someone to pray with you as you go through this process, great. There are some prayer kneelers there. If you want to have some isolated alone time off to the side for prayer, that's there for you. And here's why I feel burdened to do this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. Can we throw that verse up real quick? Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. Because we see everything that we've been saying about complacency actually happen in this church. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Next slide. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. The works you did at first, let me just say it this way. You pray missionally. You speak Jesus. You see where I'm going? Respect his name. Deep commitment and repentance. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. In other words, Jesus takes this serious. The church is his body. Lord, I ask that in this time, you would use this as a means of working and moving in our hearts. God, I pray that we would truly believe that you can do this again that you can move again, and that we are embracing and believing that you truly are the power of God again. Lord, search our hearts, know our ways. 
Lord, protect us from the enemy who wants maybe to creep in guilt and shame or even ridicule of this moment or maybe even embarrassment in this moment. So Lord, we pray for your spirit to do the work of conviction, of repentance that leads to life. And Lord, we pray that here at Austin Oaks Church, we would be a church that honors and reveres and respects your name and doesn't want to be lukewarm, but wants to believe that you can do it again. So as you feel led, church, any time in the next five plus minutes, you can come on up. I'm going to ask those who are praying to come up to the sides. And this is your opportunity to do work with the Lord.